Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Please open your Bibles to John 1 as we continue this study of John's great gospel of the life of Christ. It will surely uh, expand and deepen our faith, our love for Christ, I trust, as we focus on these great words of the Apostle John. When Billy Graham began his crusades in 1948, he dressed funny. He wore these pistachio-colored suits and, and red ties, and he sported white shoes, and there was much to do about him. Uh, There was great curiosity about him, and during his crusade in Los Angeles, thousands of people flocked to listen to him, and it was to be a three-week crusade that grew into an eight-week crusade, and celebrities and people of great standing came to hear him, and one of those was media mogul William Randolph Hearst, and he was so taken by, by Billy Graham that he sent word to all his newspapers with two words, Puff Graham. And they did. The next day, uh, Billy the Baptist's uh, picture was everywhere in newspapers. And uh, his, his um, renown and his, his great impact for the gospel began to being felt around the world. And the Holy Spirit used that seemingly godless mogul to to do something in a dramatic way. Uh, Billy Graham, in fact, later in his, his, his autobiography called Just As I Am, writes that that particular crusade was the watershed that God used to open the gospel doors around the world. 2,000 years before Billy the Baptist, there was a curious-looking preacher named John the Baptist. His attire was unusual as well. There was a much about him that created curiosity, and people thronged to him to listen to his preaching. He didn't cut his hair or his beard. He wore camel hair cloth with a leather belt around his waist. He had a strange diet of locusts and wild honey. And people were were caught. They were mesmerized by by his preaching. Our text today begins in the 19th verse of chapter 1, and these words are those of John the Apostle, who is writing about John the Baptist. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had sent, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. But I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. In our journey in God's John's gospel, we will listen again to Jesus' seven great I am statements. And in those statements, he's declaiming equality with God. John the Baptist is clearly saying in our text that he is the great I am not. He came to point people beyond himself to this great one who came into the world to be our redeemer. And this truth, this truth that Jesus is the great I am has everything to do with you and me and what we do with Jesus. I want you to notice today in our text, John's resistance, his persistence, and his insistence. We'll take one at a time. Let's start with John's resistance. When they asked him who he was, John replied, I am not the Messiah. John made three self-denials. They asked, are you the Messiah? He said, I am not. Now at this time, remember, there is, a, there is this growing anticipation, intense expectation of the Messiah among the remnant of of faithful Jews who are longing for the Messiah. God has not sent a prophet as far as we know for over 400 years. There's been this period of silence and they are eager to know what God is up to. It would have been so tempting for John right now to bring attention on himself, but he didn't. Plus, he emphatically made clear that he was not the Messiah. In the movie Rudy, you may remember that here's this young kid trying to walk on to Notre Dame's football team, and he's so discouraged about it. And so he goes to church, and he meets Father Kavanaugh, who, who tells him, you know, in my life, he said, I have learned two incontrovertible truths, and that is that there is a God, and I'm not him. And how well, how well John the Baptist lived that out. That he knew, he knew his father in heaven. He knew his role in all of this, and he carried it well out well. Second, the, the, those who came to John asked him, are you Elijah? In the last lines of the Old Testament, God promised he would send Elijah before the day of the Lord. And the Jews were expecting some uh, Elijah to somehow reappear. Even every year at the Passover, there would be an empty chair at their Passover meal for Elijah that he might come. And so through all of this, this was embedded in their thinking that Elijah would come. But John said, I am not Elijah. Yet keep in mind that according to John, uh, according to Jesus, John did perform the role of Elijah coming to announce the Messiah. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. In other words, John was the type, a type of Elijah who came. This just shows us how humble John was, that he didn't even himself realize the full extent of how God was using to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. Third, they asked him, are you the prophet? 
In Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted that a great prophet would be sent by God and God would put his very words in his mouth. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. So John said, I am not. In three ways, John was saying, I am the great, I am not, as he continued to point his life to the one who is the great I am. If there was anyone who have bragged about, could have bragged about his spirituality or his role or his position with God or his role in the unrolling of the gospel or the kingdom of God, it would have been John. But he didn't do that. The Bible says in Luke 1 that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Even when he was a newborn, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means as, as a baby, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. But I'm sure he would have been a great kid in the church nursery, right? John is a great example to us of true humility. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Any of us who are used by God at any time in any way are always subject to puffing ourselves up, to somehow putting ourselves forward or to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It is so tempting to engrandize ourselves or our influence or, 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 or to take the role that God has given us and use it for our own self-promotion. And we have to guard against that all the time, not only as individuals, but even collectively as a people. And the spirit of our church must be a spirit of humility before the Lord all the time, that we are here simply to be his people at this place and time to do his work in the world. A.W. Tozer wrote, a humble man is not a humble mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he's weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time he is in the sight of God of more importance than the angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. Someone has well said that God has designed the human body so that we cannot pat ourselves on the back or kick ourselves in the seat. I think that's a great statement. We would do well to study the life of John for a model of resistance of a prideful spirit. For us, life is all about, it must all about be more and more of, of Jesus Christ and less and less about us. Now, let's consider also John's persistence. John's persistence had to do with staying focused on what he was called to do. John said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John was quoting out of Isaiah chapter 40, which told of the messianic kingdom with these words. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be brought low. Every crooked road will be made straight. And every rough way will be made smooth. John the Baptist knew who he was and why he had been called. And his call basically was to build a highway to get people to Jesus. 
It was just in the last decade, maybe longer, I lose track of time, many of us, uh, many of us were frustrated getting into this city because the, all of I-70 was being built, it was being rebuilt and reconfigured. It was moved south because FedEx needed to be expanded and they needed the interstate to go south. And so they moved it. And I remember four or five different places they were working on I-70 and the masterfully at the end, it all connected it all came together. And I always find road building like that such a fascinating venture that, that what engineers are able to do. Um, our whole road system is such a fascinating one in our country. In the first century, you remember that God made ready the world for the entrance of the gospel by using the Romans to build their road system. Thus that old adage, you know, all roads lead to Rome. Well, John the Baptist knew his role. And no, no less marvelous was his being used as a voice crying, get ready for Jesus. He was building a highway to help people get to Jesus. And then with persistence, God made sure God, that that highway was built to help people get to Jesus. And John the Baptist was one of the ways that God did that. He announced the, the, the near coming kingdom of God, the son of God's appearance. That's our joy. And it is our joy to remove obstacles uh, on, on whatever stretch of road people are on that they can get more easily to Jesus. And all the time we are doing one thing or the other. We are hindering that process of getting people to Jesus or we are helping people get to Jesus one way or the other. We have a role in this. That's what God has called us to do. John the Baptist was a great man, according to Jesus. In Luke 7, 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. What a tribute to have the master say that about your life. But then he said, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, greater John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if you, if you have the privilege of being in the kingdom of God, you are in a greater position than John the Baptist himself because he was only announcing the kingdom. He wasn't in the kingdom. We are kingdom people, and we are in a more privileged place for God to use us for his glory if we will use that to the full degree. John was also great because of his miraculous birth, like that of Isaac, son of Abraham and Sarah. Before Gabriel visited Mary, he visited John's father, Zechariah. And the Bible tells us in Luke 1 that Zechariah's wife, uh, Elizabeth, was beyond childbearing years. But God got involved in that and miraculously enabled, Sarah, uh, enabled Elizabeth to become pregnant. And John was born. His was a miraculous birth. So this man, who was the greatest born of woman, as far as Jesus said, and the fruit of a, a miraculous birth, could only talk about the greatness of Jesus. He says, someone is coming after me uh, whose who's sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And the disciples of someone else were to do what their master said, except they were not required to touch their sandals. The feet were dirty in those days. And that would be beneath even a disciple to do. Only the most menial of slaves were required to handle their master's of sandals and to clean their feet. John says, I am not worthy to untie this man's sandals. This is the kind of life John lived. So here's our challenge in your life and my life. 
drawing people to Jesus, being a voice in our world today of the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the beauty of God. Jesus said, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. John resisted self at the center of his ministry. He persisted in building a highway to the Lord. And the third thing we want to see is John's insistence. John used a strong interjection in the Greek language to call people's attention to Jesus. He said, look, behold, hey, ah, get a load at that, you know, check it out, yo, whatever, whatever needed to be said, he pointed them to the person he was, to, he was called to point people to. Jesus is God's lamb to take away our sin. What a moment in John's life. Picture it. Jesus, John is out in the wilderness area. He is preaching his heart out. Thousands of people are coming to hear him. They are being baptized for the repentance of their sins. And one day, Jesus walks up. John notices him. And John stops in the middle of his sermon and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was an incredible claim. The Bible has a lot to say about lambs and sheep and flock. We've learned that this past year. Over 600 times the Bible mentions such, such things in the Scripture. But only two times do we have the phrase, the Lamb of God. Here in this verse and later in the chapter in verse 29, that's it. What an incredible claim. The question of the Old Testament is, where is the Lamb? There is such beautiful symmetry in the Bible. The Old and New Testaments fit perfectly together. You're probably familiar with that old biblical quip that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so it is true. The Old Testament asks a lot of questions without giving the answers. For instance, Cain asked God, am I my brother's keeper? And the New Testament answer is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Old Testament asked the question in Job, if a man dies, will he live again? And Jesus unequivocally answers that at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But the most important question of the Old Testament comes from Genesis 22. God God has told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And as they're walking up those slopes of Mount Moriah, his 13-year-old son, Isaac, asks his father, Abraham, Father, I mean, I see the wood, and I know how you're going to light the fire. I see how that's going to happen, but, but where's the lamb? Now, Abraham didn't stop there and say, well, son, I should have told you, but, you know, I'm going to go up there, and you're going to be on that altar, and I'm going to, I'm going to kill you when we get up there. But, you know, Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham could have said it. Uh, it would be a rather deranged thing for really for him to say. But Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19 later on says that, that in great faith, Abraham going up to that altar to show his love, love for God knew that somehow, that even if he had to go through this, that God could raise this boy from the dead. And so there on Mount Moriah, when Abraham was about to slay his son, that angel withheld, withheld Abraham's hand. Abraham had said to his son when he asked the question, Father, where's the lamb? 
He simply had said, God will provide a lamb. And that's exactly what God did. And there caught in thicket was that lamb that was slain instead of his son, Abraham's son, Isaac. The question of the Old Testament, where is the lamb? And the temporary answer was the whole sacrificial system, the whole law system. The whole answer throughout the Old Testament was God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. Because those lambs slain year after year were were insufficient. And so they had to keep doing it. And the answer of the New Testament is here is the Lamb of God. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. Abraham Abraham told Isaac, God provide a lamb. And 2,000 years later, God did provide the lamb. The lamb was Jesus. He wasn't a ram caught in the thicket. Jesus was the Lamb of God wearing a crown of thorns. And on the same slopes, those same slopes of Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, on that same mount, By Jesus' day called Mount Zion in Jerusalem, Jesus died as a substitute for you and me. Every word of that statement is important. Jesus wasn't just a lamb of God. He is the one and only lamb of God. For hundreds of years, the Jews had sacrificed hundreds of thousands of lambs and bulls, but this lamb was unique. Jesus is the lamb of God. All the temple sacrifice was to cover over the sins of the Israelites. The sins weren't forgiven. They were just covered over for another year until they had to do it all again. But this was an earth-shattering claim about the Lamb of God. He wouldn't just take away the many sins of Israel. He would take away the sins of the world. And he would do it presently. It doesn't say he will take away the sins of the world. He came to do it right now. He takes away the sin of the world. It's an amazing thing that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. This is the challenge we have in loving people to Jesus Christ because in our culture and society, we've lost the concept of sin, of right and wrong, of true and false, of moral and immoral. All those lines are blurred. And so when we're loving people to Christ, the hardest thing to deal with in our conversations is how bad sin is, and that we all need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. We need someone to rescue us from sin and shame. But don't draw back in kindness and in love and in in graciousness of spirit. The sin problem has to be addressed because this is our problem with God, that we have been an affront to God. We've rebelled against Him. We've sinned against Him. And Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. So And I want to thank some of you have already taken the one challenge and you shared that with us. Thank you so much. It's such an encouragement. And for those of you who haven't done it yet, continue to think and pray about that. God, who is that one person you want me to take? You want to take in my heart to love well deeply within and to engage in a friendship and conversation, to pray about, to, to eat with, to engage with in conversation. You know, who is this, the Lord? That don't, don't let this drop by the wayside. And by the way, if you're watching today, and if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, who came to die in your place as a substitute for sin, uh, please talk with us. Let us know you need to take care of this, to be ready for Christ's coming. You see, we're, we're helping people get to Jesus Not because he'll just make you feel better, though he will. 
Not because, um, you know, uh, we, we just want, him, want them to have a, a better self-esteem or we want them to have better answers for life. All of that's good. But we all need a sacrifice for sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God and the only way by which our sins can be forgiven and a relationship with God restored. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher of the 1800s. If you were with us at Christmas Eve service, we listened to that great quote of Spurgeon that he, uh, it was from his sermon he preached in 1854 on Christmas Eve. It was called God With Us, if you'll remember. Spurgeon was the son and grandson of great preachers, and he had read many Christian books that presented the gospel, but nothing seemed to help him. He was having difficulty uh, just agonizing over his sins so much, he wondered even at times if he, if he was mentally unbalanced because he just couldn't land anywhere. When he was 15 years old, he was walking to his dad's church, but there was a snowstorm, and uh, he couldn't make it. So he turned down a side alley and, and found this small primitive Methodist church. And there were only about 15 people there in attendance. And the preacher was a very sincere uh, man, but very uneducated man as well. And that morning, the preacher was preaching from Isaiah 45, 22, that says, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. In his autobiography, Spurgeon recalled the word of the preacher. He said, My friends, this is simple. It says, Look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man don't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a 1,000 pounds a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Then the preacher looked directly at young Spurgeon, and he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you always will be miserable. You'll be miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. And he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And Spurgeon wrote that he had been waiting to do 50 things. But that one word, look, cleared away the clouds. He looked to the Lamb of God and was saved that day. He would go on to be probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. My good friends, <clears throat> we want to live and speak and conduct ourselves in a way that we're saying to those around us, just look Look to the one in whom we found life. Look to the one who has rescued me from sin and shame and death and hopelessness. Look to the one who's our life giver and our way maker. Lift him up and we make him known, brothers and sisters. Isn't the world weary? Aren't you weary? We are pandemically weary. We are politically worn out. We are in a place where we wonder if there's any core to anything around us in our culture. 
But friends, we are of a different kingdom. We are not of this world. We are of a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom. We are of a king who reigns forever. And he changes everything about how we deal with our days and how we get up in the morning and how we view life and how we engage people and how we view the circumstances of life. He is the one who has called us to join him in this greatest effort that flows out of the heart of God, loving people well to a living relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and has given us life that is really life. Isn't it a privilege to know him? Isn't it a thrill to know that there is life in him? There is a peace that passes understanding. And to live this life that is completely alternative life and what the culture offers is so, so far exceeds any other way that we would ever want to live. Praise God, we get to handle these true matters of truth today and live for Jesus. And so let's resist the temptation to make ourselves the centerpiece. Let's resist the temptation to build a life for ourselves apart from the kingdom of God. Let's make sure pride is kept out of it. Let's persist and and. Letting God use our lives to get people to Jesus, always building a highway to get to him. And let's insist by our life conviction, our love for the word, our intensity in prayer, our fellowship together, that there is only one person we care about. He is the great I am, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for rescuing us out of our deadness, out of our lostness. Thank you for never leaving us as you have found us, but always making us better, expanding our lives, building us into be better people than we could ever be on our own. Forgive us, Father, when we have not, when we have not surrendered everything And please continue to expose us, Father, by the light of your word and by the presence of your Holy Spirit within us. All that of us that still needs to be yielded completely. Oh God, use us. Build our church to be a strong place where Jesus is Lord over all, individually and collectively, that he will be made known. May God be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.